Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes from Afternoon Now. We have a series of presentations by senior officials from the US intelligence community on subjects of great interest. Today, we have a very special guest with a very timely issue. To uh, host today's session, I'm going to introduce my um, friend and former and FEO uh, board member colleague, um, Jim Bruce. Jim is a retired CIA analyst, and he is going to take the session and introduce our guest. Jim, over to you. Well, uh, th thank you, Jim. Uh, it is uh, it's my distinct honor and privilege to introduce Shelby Pearson uh, to members of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers for this interview in our FEO Now Recorded Interviews program. Um, Shelby and I first came together nearly 30 years ago, actually working on a significant national intelligence estimate, and we've had episodic uh, collaborations since. Uh, Shelby is a senior intelligence officer serving in the office of the Director of National Intelligence, where she was appointed by former DNI Dan Coates to the new position of election threat executive in July 2019. She was also the National Intelligence Crisis Manager for the 2018 midterm elections, where she managed critical election security issues and increased information sharing operations across the intelligence community to support election integrity. Before that, she was the DNI's National Intelligence Manager for Russia and Eurasia. And although her professional roots are deep in the CIA, where her analytical career began at the National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington, D.C., over 20 years ago, she's a career officer at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Shelby, I'd like to begin uh, with a brief discussion of your present assignment as the election threat executive. When DNI Dan Coates announced establishing the ETE and your appointment to the new position, he indicated that you would serve as the DNI's principal advisor on threats to the U.S. election and on matters related to election security. Additionally, he indicated that the ETE, you, would coordinate and integrate all election security activities, initiatives, and programs across the intelligence community and synchronize intelligence efforts in support of the broader U.S. government. Can you say something about these various functions and how you have advised the three DNIs you have served, Dan Coates, Joe McGuire is acting, and John Ratcliffe, concerning foreign threats to our elections? And I should add, what kinds of initiatives and programs do you coordinate across the community aimed to help neutralize foreign interference? To join you and colleagues in uh, the AFIO organization, uh, since I really appreciate that those who have already served the nation need to be interested in national security topics and topics that are germane to, to the work that people have dedicated their lives to. So I'm delighted to be with you here today. So a couple things uh, that I'll share with you and the group this morning. Um, first, as you know, we had information in 2016 uh, that was quite relevant to 
uh, direct threats uh, to both infrastructure, uh, Russians, for example, scanning uh, state and local election networks, and also influence operations, which included the use of social media platforms to uh, proliferate uh, divisive messaging within the United States. And the United States intelligence community had information uh, that could illuminate those activities for those who are responsible for administering our elections. So the intelligence community's role in this space really came um, into clarity in 2016. And so it is upon that uh, acknowledgement and commitment to this uh, very important topic that Dan Coates uh, uh, created the designations that you mentioned. And so in the capacity of the ET today, I think first and foremost, it is designed to bring the best expertise and information to state and local election officials, to our colleagues in DHS and FBI who have the federal leads for uh, domestic support to the U.S. election um, enterprise. And so I think we spend uh, our top priorities ensuring that our reporting and our focus remains um, steady on this topic that crosses several disciplines, counterintelligence, cyber, regional expertise, which would be plans and intentions, um, as well as this broader, I think, burgeoning uh, moniker of foreign malign influence. And so first and foremost, we spend our time ensuring that uh, our information is integrated so that you have not just a cyber product and a CI product and a regional product, but trying to integrate those in a way that help our customers have an integrated picture um, which you know is the focus of those of us who serve here at the ODNI, um, to make sure that our customers are getting the most comprehensive picture of, of both adversaries' interest in this topic as well as how they're executing those plans in their own interest. I serve as the DNI's principal advisor on threats to elections, and as you know from statements uh, the administration has made, this remains a top priority, and the work um, certainly began in the aftermath of 2016, continued through the midterms in 2018, and really has been at full tilt as we uh, prepare and participate in, in what's already um, the election season today. The main parts of our work and, and a few of uh, the projects that we're working on right now, as I mentioned, includes a real focus on information sharing. And so, as you know, you might have state and local election officials. For example, I'm briefing secretaries of state tomorrow. Um, these are relationships and venues that didn't uh, fully mature until just a few years ago. And so we are uh, sharing directly with them intelligence information, both at the unclassified and classified level as appropriate, to help them prepare in their responsibility to effectively adjudicate and execute and administer the upcoming election. Second, as I mentioned, is providing that integrated picture uh, that also has a great focus as we have, we, the intelligence community, have statutory requirements to provide integrated intelligence analysis of what occurred in the lead up to the elections to inform decision makers as to how um, we will execute further policies, whether that's sanctions, demarches, um, uh, other designations from uh, the policymaking community as to consequences to nations who have attempted to interfere with our elections. In addition to that, I want to focus a bit on this concept of, of notification. And you've heard or have seen in the press 
um, that the president in 2019 signed out a policy on um, a mechanism that allows us to further engage with those who need to know about election interference or influence activities that might not have been the direct victim of a particular attack. And so what's interesting about that is that the ODNI administers that policy, um, and it really ensures that when there is a compelling need under certain articulated conditions, we can engage with a whole suite of related actors, um, which could include journalists, members of Congress, um, NGOs and other um, officials to share with them information about uh, election interference. And that is certainly a huge step forward from where we were in 2016, where you might only have um, a bilateral engagement, for example, with a specific victim of a cyber attack. This allows us to engage much more broadly to create a situational awareness of threats, um, which inherently sort of broadens and boosts the resilience of the nation. Um, and again, I think that this is, uh, uh, for me, not only what we do today, but I also look forward beyond 2020 as we want to develop uh, this uh, discipline and sort of mature this work um, in preparation for future elections going forward. So some of the work here at ODNI is also looking towards the future as to how we can bring in new technology, work more closely with academia and the private sector. Um, and, and frankly, as I mentioned, you know, mature this work from not only where we were in 2016 and in 2018 and today, but making those plans and committing those resources. As you know, we do here at ODNI to look forward. Um, over not only the budget cycles, but in line with where technical developments can help us most. Well, I must say, Shelby, that's an extraordinarily broad portfolio. I really had no idea how how extensive uh, the the outreach effort is, as, as well as your connections across the community and across the policy community. Um, but uh, let's see if we can get a little more granular here on a very important and timely question. What what kind of election threats are you most worried about? for the 2020 election. And again, you know, with only uh, a few weeks uh, to election day and for us in the intelligence community, as I know, um, many of, of your listeners are tracking as well. Voting is beginning um, and, and underway in, I believe, 40 states now uh, or 48 states now. So it, it's really more of a season than just a, a moment event that that is bounded by one day. So for us, I think generally speaking, and you've read, a couple of the public statements that my colleague Bill Ivanina has made on this topic. Overall, I think the thrust of delegitimization is my biggest concern. And what I mean by that is any activities, whether that's direct threats to infrastructure and or influence operations conducted on social media by foreign intelligence services, both of those efforts can undermine voter confidence and uh, proliferate uh, the skepticism and uncertainty across the voting population as to the integrity of the election. And so to me, the delegitimization moniker really touches on both the infrastructure challenge as well as the influence issue. Um, because for example, along infrastructure, I think we've warned the public of our concern of ransomware, um, hacktivists, even what might not be at the hand of an adversary, a foreign adversary, where, for example, um, uh, as you know, in the state of Virginia, just earlier this week, they had a cable go down, which 
stopped voter registration activity on the last day. Even that that isn't at the hands of an adversary, the activities when taken in total contribute to an overall skepticism. And when added to vote by mail concerns, added to other vignettes of cyber problems, again, whether they're the result of a direct attack from an adversary, which we're always worried about um, and, and are on the watch for, or just simply the um, load leveling of so many people trying to get on a network at a particular time, all of those can contribute to, as I said, a concern um, that, that somehow the vote is not being executed um, as completely or as competently as I think voters uh, should believe in. I think on the influence side, you also then have, as I said, whether that's promulgated by a foreign intelligence service or um, even local activists or domestic activists, I should say, which are looking to amplify divisive messaging, whether that's surrounding having confidence in the vote or other political topics uh, like our protests this summer, um, well as um, some of the other domestic issues that we're facing going into the election, all of those can be amplified by foreign actors to create distraction, uh, to uh, increase the divide within the nation, which could affect certainly how a, a voter acts uh, in the booth, so to speak, um, as well as their confidence in the election. And also I want to point out, um, Jim is concerned for, for post-election delegitimization, where as we've all cast our vote, and I hope all of your listeners are, are committed to participating in the upcoming election, that after the fact, there will be, I think, ongoing concerns of infrastructure challenges and influence operations as to how the states get to certification, the administration of the Electoral College, and getting us uh, to Inauguration Day. These challenges of delegitimization do not end on, on November 3rd. So for me, when I think of everything from proliferated deep deep fakes on the internet, social media threats, using unwitting Americans, as, as we've noted that the Russians do, um, whether those are journalists or, or just other contributors to our social dialogue in the nation, all of this can contribute to a climate of skepticism and concern that somehow the election is not legitimate. Well, that's actually an amazing discussion, because when you go back into the historic uh, uh, work of the intelligence community, delegitimizing the U.S. elections has never been part of the mission set, and this is extraordinarily important. Uh, uh, Shelby, you mentioned the importance of, uh, of starting this work really with the uh, Russian intervention in the 2016 election. And I wonder if you can address the issue of what we can expect Russia to do to try to affect the 2020 election. Of course. And I also want to raise, Jim, that you, you bring up a great point that election security and, and domestic, uh, the sort of the interplay between domestic and foreign here as it relates to our democratic processes is really a fresh domain for the intelligence community. And I think you can see how fraught that is in terms of how uh, all of us were raised as intelligence officers to really appreciate that domestic red line, so to speak. And so there's an interplay here 
that I think was illuminated in 2016 per your question, um, even though the disciplines of counterintelligence go back, for example, many, many decades as a core component of the intelligence community, cyber, our regional expertise, all of that work existed well before 2016, but it was the revelations of those activities that really brought together to say we need to integrate those disciplines in a tighter way to create a greater level of cognizance and appreciation for what our adversaries are doing. We have released a few statements about um, what the Russians um, are doing today. I think uh, these tactics are familiar to uh, uh, many folks, which include um, potential leaks of information and, and specific leaking of information that fits a narrative um, that suits their national interests, whether that's denigrating Vice President Biden and or uh, boosting President Trump. Um, I think you've also seen even recent press reports, for example, of on social media and proliferating, again, those divisive narratives surrounding a spectrum of political issues in the United States. Um, Russia is also using its overt media, uh, which has certainly raised um, its profile over the past several years to promote uh, narratives that are, again, in their national interest. And also, um, uh, sponsoring proxy websites. I think you're familiar with uh, the Peace Data Takedown, where we had websites that are, again, um, mimicking, I'd say, legitimate web presence and proliferating information, albeit sponsored uh, by the Russians. And then, as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, using unwitting U.S. persons to boost the credibility of information as it's disseminated, as it might not have the, the sort of clunkiness if it was uh, coming from Russia directly. And that's another, I, I think, development uh, that we've seen since 2016. I think for us, you know, without a doubt, uh, the Russians uh, remain a significant threat for us, um, whether it's both in the election security context as well as a broader suite of uh, uh, bilateral challenges, whether that's cyber, uh, non-proliferation, um, proxy engagements uh, in Syria, Libya, and other areas. Um, against the backdrop of near-term goals related to the election, as well as the longer-term goal of weakening the United States. I do want to point out, Jim, uh, that for us, it, it is important to point out that as much as 2016 was focused on Russia, for us today, th this is really a multidimensional problem. It is Russia, it is China, it is Iran, it is other actors, um, it um, threats to infrastructure as well as influence. So I, I do want to mention here that we do believe that China will likely continue to use a very strong um, influence capability to denigrate um, the administration policies to shape the U.S. So yeah, I think we have a technical glitch uh, because the last part of your answer uh, was garbled and cut out, and I. Uh, I wonder if you could repeat the last paragraph or so that deals with the diversity of the threat. Sure. Happy to do so. Um, so I think there there are a couple issues for us um, that is important for our uh, group to understand that these threats beyond uh, Russia um, and also uh, bring in China and Iran as major actors in this area, as well as others. Uh, for example, we do uh, strongly believe that China will continue using a very pervasive 
overt and covert influence capability to denigrate the current presidential administration and its policies uh, to shape uh, U.S. domestic information in favor of China. On the Iran front, uh, again, we believe that they will certainly continue to promote mess objectives, which include um, amplifying tensions in the United States, uh, critical messaging of, of the current U.S. president, and, and we believe that that will certainly continue through the election season um, uh, and beyond. So for us, this is um, those three major actors, as well as others, uh, and both in the areas of threats to infrastructure, as well as influence operations um, to, to shape U.S. domestic uh, perspectives. Shelby, that sounds like we're uh, really up against a, uh, a threat that is, I don't think is widely appreciated in the general public um, relative to the kind of information you have available in, in intelligence. Uh, so the question that most citizens must be wondering now, you know, based on what you just said, is uh, here we are in 2020, and are we are we ready? I mean, with the election just days away, literally days away. Conventional wisdom, I think, is that in spite of the four years we've had to prepare and so little public information about what we've been doing, uh, we are still, or maybe we're still, uh, quite unprepared, actually, to counter foreign intervention. So, Jim, I think there's two uh, thoughts to mind. Um, and, you know, I know for many of us who have served in the intelligence community, uh, you can never be too prepared uh, to face our, our threats. So one thing that I would offer is that the dramatic increase in intelligence focus um, and commitment on this topic really has postured the intelligence community in a way uh, that's unprecedented. And so I've even had colleagues share with me uh, who have had the privilege of serving overseas on the counterterrorism issue, uh, really share that what we do on election security um, parallels, if not surpasses, the level of integration and, and, and work that we've done in the post-9-11 uh, world. I do think that the intelligence community has been laser-focused under the leadership of the DNIs and the other agency directors um, as you know, to ensure that at least all that we contribute to this um, uh, vital topic is um, uh, ready and shared uh, in a timely fashion to help those that actually administer the elections. It is important to point out, however, uh, to your listeners that um, our role is limited. We do not adjudicate elections. We do not administer elections. We have no role in the certification process. And so there really is, I think, a broader conversation, of, uh, as you know, that is played out um, well outside the walls of the intelligence community as to the levels of domestic investment in infrastructure and things of that nature. What I will say that I've learned from my colleagues at DHS is that um, that that each administer their own aspect of the election, the diversity of that system, as well as their own um, investments in the resiliency and redundancies in the system are, are far greater than anything we had available, not only in Bush before, but also since 2016. So I hope that those are confidence building measures, but I rest assured that our work is not done um, on November 3rd. So th thank you, Shelby. That gives us much better insight into our state of uh, readiness. Um, 
But uh, let me ask you a different kind of a question. Uh, we've talked about the variety of threats in terms of foreign actors, but in terms of types of intervention, uh, I'm thinking first about methods to influence voter perceptions, that is to say, to, to affect their choices like propagandizing for a preferred candidate or against another one that's, that the actor would want to reject, or even fostering voter suppression. You know, a second, a second method is to manipulate the actual voting machinery, such as uh, the voting registration rolls or ballot manipulation, or even uh, counting or denial of service interruptions to cripple, to cripple the vote tabulation process. Of those two types, uh, vote, manipulating perceptions or uh, attacking the election machinery, um, wh where do you think the emphasis is going to be for this election, both by foreign adversaries and by uh, U.S. countermeasures? That's a great question, Jim. So I would offer a, a couple of observations. From an intelligence community perspective, we are pretty even-handed in terms of our resourcing and examination and focus on both of those areas of activity. So I think you have the cyber community, again, working at full tilt, and you also have uh, uh, the officers that work on foreign influence, whether those are technical operations and or plans and intentions, again, working uh, uh, at, a, at a heavy clip um, because both of those streams of activities and those threats are unacceptable to the United States. So from an intel perspective, we're covering down on both. I do think that, um, as you will know, influence, a very broad topic, some of it is very um, and not illegal. Um, I think there's a, a, a pervasiveness of interest in U.S. politics and influence um, is, is part of that climate. So we do tend to focus on that which is covert and the hidden hand of foreign intelligence services might not be known uh, to the users. So we try to focus on illuminating um, and working, for example, with social media and tech firms to share this information in a way that they can uh, tackle that from uh, uh, those influence threats. I will say, um, undoubtedly, our top priority is to ensure the integrity of the actual process of voting, the mechanics and the infrastructure and the, what I will characterize as sort of the technical and tactical administration of the actual vote cast is a vote counted with the legitimacy of participation uh, by all voters is the, the driving priority of the nation. Um, and the, I can certainly say that overall from a policy perspective, that as much as influence is sort of maybe part and parcel of, of healthy democracy, um, we have a zero tolerance for um, material antagonism of the administration of the vote. So I, I, again, I, that is not a value judgment. Uh, and we focus on both the threats sort of evenly um, and equally. But I do think this issue of uh, the infrastructure itself drives um, uh, an absolute focus to ensure um, that our state and local officials can get to certification as both their state statutes and, and processes require, as well as the Constitution. So that really does have a, a laser focus on it, um, particularly as we go into the certification process after November 3rd. Yes, uh, uh, Shelby, let me shift gears again, if I can, back to the uh, back to the uh, foreign actors as, as threats. You know, you mentioned earlier, we discussed this a little bit about the uh, 
about the threats from Russia, China, and Iran. And uh, I wonder if you can give us a little better insight about which is the most serious threat uh, to our election integrity and why. You know, I think, um, Jim, we steer away from any sort of ranking of those threats. Um, and part of that isn't the coy or, or uh, but I do think there, there are a couple of dimensions to that. One, um, as you know, these actors are not only different in their capabilities, they are different in their intentions. And yet, even if you have one actor that might have greater resources or capabilities in a certain area, you can still have an actor um, that has either rudimentary uh, insights and capabilities have on these processes. So it doesn't mean that you have to say, well, I only worry about the top two and not the other five, six, seven, eight, nine, because at any given time in any space, a nation can have an effect. And so for us, it's really about evenly illuminating capabilities and intentions, as well as how that aligns to their objectives going forward vis-a-vis its relationship with the United States. So uh, we have noted our concern of of all three actors, China, Russia, and Iran, uh, with ongoing and potential activity sponsored by all three of them. Um, And I think for us, it has been... um, we recognize that that uh, many people have asked us about whether we rank them or whether the order in which we've communicated them is somehow um, uh, illuminating um, our priorities. It is not. We are looking at all three of those actors as well as several others um, with, with even intensity uh, across the board um, and trying, as I think everyone knows, um, to look at them uh, dispassionately and apolitically and help our decision makers use that information in, in the most effective way possible, regardless of the actor. Yes, that, uh, good point, Shelby. But uh, I'm wondering if you can say something about how how effective you think our adversaries are relative to our election integrity. Well, I think, you know, what's interesting about that is uh, in the election domain, um, I think they're, they are as effective as we as a nation allow them to be. And I, I've really appreciated, for example, some of the work uh, that our allies in Europe have done. So, for example, Estonia and Finland, um, they really have a greater cognizance and resilience as a nation um, because they have shared experiences against the Russians. For They have very broad policies that enable a, a pretty cohesive uh, posture against uh, foreign interference. You also saw this in, in Great Britain and in France. Canada also has um, interesting policies in this area. And I think this is this is an area that we need to, to further when I talk about looking on the horizon of areas of improvement. I think there there is this notion of how do we further illuminate to the American public our vulnerability to influence operations and also illuminate the reality of threats to cyber networks and just simply use that knowledge to empower us to invest in our infrastructure, to make sure that we are competently and comprehensively uh, maintaining our networks and, and putting in patches. Um, and, and I think there's a great uh, 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 reference from my colleagues at DHS that they really believe that the election infrastructure is 
better maintained and broader maintained and really has the support of the federal government, um, perhaps uh, uh, in a greater way than any other part of our infrastructure nationwide. And so that's a great lesson learned to talk about the capabilities and competencies that we need as a nation. But those are vulnerabilities that are frankly created by us or should be acknowledged by us and we can remediate them. So to me, it, this, this issue, I'd like to turn the question about how effective our adversaries are. They're they are effective because they're taking advantage of vulnerabilities that exist. And so for me, our, the, the remedy for that is focusing inwardly uh, to, to make ourselves less, um, I don't say less interesting as a target. I think that's unrealistic that the U.S. would ever be non-interesting to these nations, but I think less vulnerable as a target. And then also uh, using intelligence information and our full suite of government tools um, to, to raise the consequence against these nations um, so that they will recalculate as to whether it's in their interest to even undertake such activities. All of that, I think, contributes not only to, quote unquote, making them less effective, but making us more resilient against uh, their activities. Yes. Uh, yeah. Very, very good point. Uh, tell me another area where I don't think we have a very good public understanding is the relationship that the intelligence community has with the private sector in working this problem. There's no doubt that the, the private sector parties are essential uh, in this, in our countermeasures efforts. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that. This is a, a, a certain area of um, focus and also one where I think we've made um, considerable improvements. Uh, one, as I know our colleagues in AFIO can appreciate, um, the intelligence community doesn't always have um, a natural relationship with companies. Um, and in addition to that, when you're talking about companies whose focus and business model centers on uh, protected free speech, again, there's lots of complexities um, to this work. But I do think there's a mutual acknowledgement that one, the intelligence community information that can help these firms um, better support their customers and, and how they manage their work with the American public. And when I talk about work with the private sector, it's not just the large social media companies. It's also the technical firms, as well as cybersecurity firms that um, provide the infrastructure and support to those who are administering the election. So I do want to foot stomp that there's both the influence piece in social media and, and other platforms, as well as the technical piece um, on, on the infrastructure, like working with a Microsoft or a Google, for example, that are very large companies that have a, a, a pervasive customer base in this space. So I have done is we work to share information that is relevant to their um, work. And then those internal organizations will make decisions as to whether or not the behavior on their platform, for example, in social media circumstances, is a violation of their terms of service. And you've seen covered in the press that they will oftentimes take action based upon information that's shared with them from the U.S. government. In addition to that, I think, again, there's a, a healthy engagement on the cybersecurity front that's a pretty mature community that works tightly together to ensure that there's a very dynamic interplay of technical information by which we share um, insights on malware, insights on vulnerabilities with these companies so that they can more quickly remediate um, uh, uh, these problems and vulnerabilities. I do think one other area that I would like to point out is um, it is important to recognize that the intelligence community does not assess the effect 
of these operations. We are there to illuminate the activities that are sponsored by our adversaries. Um, and there really is a strong uh, basis across civil society, NGOs and academics, um, think tanks and others that I really think also can be part of this um, election security ecosystem. So one of the areas that I think in terms of working with uh, non-government institutions whether it's in the private sector or in broader civil society, I think looking forward beyond 2020, Jim, is, is not only maturing our relationship with those companies, broadening that, strengthening um, uh, that interplay, but also bringing more uh, 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 constituents in who actually look at this data and look at this information and look at this activity within their mandate and their writ. You know, for example, I think... Um, Stanford and Harvard and Ohio State, they have all done great work on disinformation. Um, and that's work that the intelligence community doesn't do, but it makes for a richer um, environment in which we can look at this, this issue holistically. So I don't think the intelligence community needs to do everything in election security. We need to address what we know best and what we know from the sources from overseas that, that we know how to collect uh, uh, secrets and secret information um, and then rely on expertise and, and create those interplays and relationships that we can mature over time. Yeah, great. I'm glad, uh, glad we discussed this because uh, obviously Microsoft was in the news just uh, yesterday uh, bringing down some websites and the implication from the press coverage I saw in it is that uh, it was facilitated by help from the intelligence community. Uh, and that that's really really an important, uh, important element of our countermeasures. Uh, let me ask you an, another question, Shelby, that takes us beyond the intelligence community. Uh, and I want to re return to your initial point about the importance of, of dealing with the efforts to delegitimize our elections. But what is your expectation for a U.S. public opinion regarding the integrity of the 2020 election? I mean, do uh, you think most people will think it was fair or rigged? Uh, and, and why? I think, again, Jim, from from my leadership perch, I, I don't know that, that I'm best equipped to sort of characterize in total the, the perspective of the American people. But I will make a couple of observations um, to sort of uh, illuminate this, this question. Um, it has been very interesting that our work from 2016, 2017, 2018 has sort of dragged the intelligence community from the shadows into front and center stage on this topic. And so I think what has been interesting is many, many people look to the intelligence community to whether the election was legitimate or not. And that's a very awkward space for us to be in um, because not only is it is we are an apolitical enterprise um, and we that is a, a core component of our professionalism and our work regardless of, of administration and political tilt. I think the second part of that though is that it has raised the profile and the broader discussion of skepticism in elections. So whether people perceive that it's rigged or fair or not, just the volume of dialogue about elections has increased dramatically. And at the same time, I also think you have seen um, a real effort on the part of not only the federal government, but private NGOs and others to try to combat that skepticism by saying, let's have a rich discussion about elections and how we protect 
and there should be transparency in how people know exactly uh, votes are calculated. Um, and, and that's an effort to boast, both boost confidence as well as um, transparency is a core component of democracy. But there's also been these voices from the federal government and others. In fact, we just released a, a series of videos on Facebook um, that are really designed to, to help voters understand, coexist with the skepticism, understand the threats, and yet you need to participate. And yet you need to, to look at that um, fairly. And regardless of, of any particular political persuasion and or perspective about whether the election is fair or not, um, we have confidence in the administration of the election, even if we have challenges, even if we have uh, concerns about the infrastructure, the outcome, certainly at scale, is legitimate. And that is something that I think we're seeking to affirm and affirm through a variety of voices um, uh, across the board to help voters and individuals and groups understand um, uh, that a vote cast should be a vote counted and that participation and patience are the key components of how we're going to move forward. So again, I don't know that, again, I'm in a position to characterize what, what the American public thinks and why, and, and, and everyone is well familiar with just the, the very heavy climate of concern and, um, sort of intrigue about the legitimacy of elections. But I can say from my perspective and expertise in this area, they should have confidence and they should have confidence in the commitment of the professionals that are required to, to actually execute this process. Um, and, and, and hopefully that confidence uh, can, can be a foundation upon which we'll move forward uh, after November 3rd, regardless of who, who's the winner. Yeah, very helpful. Clearly that would be a significant intelligence contribution uh, if we uh, if we were able to add to the confidence of the American electorate. Uh, Shelby, we're bumping up against the clock here, so I, I only want to ask you just uh, one more question, and that is I want to uh, see if you have any other closing thoughts that you'd like to share with us, because we've gone over most of the issues that, actually all of the issues that, uh, that, we, that we wanted to cover from AFIO's standpoint. But do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with us that we have not yet discussed or covered in this discussion? Jim, I'll, I'll end with uh, two um, statements or observations that I'd like to share, particularly with uh, to end where we started with your group and community of former intelligence officers. One, um, I, I think and I hope that former intelligence officers are very proud of the work that the intelligence community is doing today in what is, a, I think everyone recognizes, uh, not only a difficult task and difficult target, to, to use our lexicon, um, uh, but also has a, a considerable amount of pressure and complexity to it in terms of, of how we do our work, where we do our work, what we focus on. Um, and so I, I would offer that um, we work these topics uh, with diligence and commitment that I think is built on the legacy of those who have served before us. And so that's something I would offer uh, to your members and constituents. Um, the last thing that, that I will, um, which I mentioned just a second ago, is uh, certainly people need to have a plan uh, and, and certain people need to participate in whatever way uh, they can and that they are comfortable and that uh, uh, people need to be patient. And so those three Ps have been shared by my colleagues at DHS and I use them uh, liberally. But as we are colleagues in the intelligence community, we're also uh, fellow voters and citizens. And so I would offer that 
as much as we've um, which make it difficult and which make it um, uh, certainly something that requires our due attention and and um, our focus at the same time um, our utmost responsibility here is to participate and uh, continue um, to, to support these democratic activities because anything short of that, our adversaries have been successful. So to me, the, the first step in countering, and I know uh, we have focused this morning on a lot of countermeasures, the first step in countermeasures is participation. Shelby, this has been enormously informative and helpful. And uh, on behalf of Jim Hughes and the entire membership of, of FEO, I, I can't thank you enough. It's been so, so helpful. And thank, thank you again so much for illuminating this extraordinarily important and serious problem. And we'll be looking forward to, to the post-election results to evaluate how well, how poorly we've done on this. Thank you again, Shelby. Exceptionally I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this has been a terribly important uh, and very informative presentation expertly delivered by Shelby uh, Pearson. I want to thank Jim Bruce and Shelby in the DNI for bringing this to the AFIO audience on a very timely basis.